following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Let's open our Bibles. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be at the end of Genesis 1 and end of Genesis 2 today. It is, it is good to be with you. Um, and if you're in the foyer, thank you. Thanks for hanging out in the foyer, doing your thing, and we're grateful. Uh, if you guys see somebody in the foyer and there's room, uh, ushers help us out. Would that be awesome? We're going to dive into the book of Genesis again today. And let's just remember something I think it really bears repeating. The book of Genesis was written as a declaration of news to the people it was written to. It was not written as a response to a debate. All right, we've got to understand that because when we come to the book of Genesis in our world, <clears throat> we feel this, this tension that we have to prove these things to the non-believing world as if these things were true so they could see that they were true. And we go through all the scientific battle. And there's a place for all of that. The challenge with some of that is that's not why the text was written. It was written to encourage the people of God that they have a God who created everything. And in the midst of a world that is surrounded by false deities, this God, their God, is the one who created everything. It's written to encourage them. Moses wrote this book for our benefit to encourage us, to inspire worship in our hearts, to make us see that God is the creator of all things, and we, His people, are so glad. And so when we, what we've seen in the book of Genesis so far has been this remarkable phrase, God said, and stuff happened. God spoke, and out of order, I mean out of chaos, there became order. Out of darkness, there became light. That God separated the land from the seas and the heavens from the earth. When God spoke, He created all things. Everything that we see, God created for us. And this morning, we're going to focus on God's creation of humanity. Let me just say a few things about this before we jump in. It is remarkably challenging when you're studying these texts, or when you're preaching these texts, or when you're hearing sermons on these texts, to not throw in all the things that you might experience in your world today. Remember, Genesis 1 and 2 were written prior, in a sense, revealing to us what did the world look like before sin came in. You and I don't even have a category for that. We breathe air of chaos every day. We breathe air of sin every day. And, and what Genesis 1 and 2 reveal to us is... How God created what He created and why He created what He created. And then what you find in the Bible is Genesis 3 happens where man sins against God. And then you find God then sending a Savior to restore us to what Genesis 1 and 2 looks like. So when you have the Bible in hand and you get to Genesis 3, you're going to notice some fascinating things. You're going to notice God promising to send a Savior, which we're going to see later. And you're going to see in the, in the New Testament this remarkable display, and I'll try to point out some of them today, where the things we see in Genesis 1, Christ restores to us. That's remarkably important that we understand that when we look at this. So when you read this, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to fight yourself from overlaying all of your sinful world in the middle of all this. 
Okay, Because there's some things in here that God gave us from the beginning before sin ever entered that was the way God designed it. And we've got to understand that. And the reason why we understand that is it's the original design that we can see when Christ came to restore us, what is He restoring us to? And Genesis 1 and 2 lay the foundation for that. Okay, So now there is a lot of confusion in our world today about these texts. There's a ton of confusion in our world about humans and about why we're even here and our, of our importance in this world. As I was studying this a few weeks ago, uh, I, w- I came across a sermon by John MacArthur. And in that sermon, he referenced a place called the Church of Euthanasia. Here's what he said in this sermon. The Church of Euthanasia believes that animal rights are superior to human rights. A representative from that organization told a TV audience, a national audience, and I quote, If we're going to kill off species, let's kill humanity first. Because humans are only a minor species with a minor role to play in the overall diversity of nature. When I research this group, their website is disturbing. It's more than disturbing. And some of the things I found on that website were things I wrote in my notes. I thought, I'm going to repeat some of these, but I'll repeat one thing for you because it's the rest is pretty disturbing. Their one commandment is, thou shalt not procreate. Their motto is, save the planet, kill yourself. Now, as disturbing as that is, it's as far disturbing as you can possibly imagine, before we laugh it off or before we decide that is disgusting, which it is, we need to realize we're actually breathing this air every day, we just don't realize it. We see media campaigns for save the whales or you name the animal species, but anything to save the unborn is seen as backward and taking rights away. We see lawsuits about saving the environment or saving the trees that make really really the ability to do business in our community ridiculously expensive. And it lacks for taking care of our appropriate forests like we'd like to see taken care of. But any any conversation about proper conservation and stewardship of the environment for human flourishing is tossed out the window as unscientific. Nobody wants to hear it. We have gender debates and gender fights about gender transition, gender roles. But the idea, the idea, even in the church, to be honest with you, that God gave us created, God gave, God created gender as a pathway for true joy, peace, and true satisfaction and fulfillment in the human life is laughed at and mocked at. We live in a day when the, the worship of creation has displaced the worship of the Creator. And sadly, in my several years of ministry experience, the church has so confused these issues and so confused how we handle relationships on these issues that what ends up happening is we have nothing to offer the world. So let me say something to those of you that are here. There are some of you that are here that maybe these are issues you struggle with. You struggle with Your gender. You're struggling with a variety of things I just mentioned. You're wrestling with, you know, same-sex attraction. You're wrestling with the type of body God gave you. You're wrestling with questions about your own personal gender. Well, I want to say to you as a leader of this church that 
we believe that the way that God created us, all of us, and everything, is on purpose. And God designed it for your wonderful joy. God has a plan. We care about you. We want you to know that we're willing to help you, serve you, listen to you, be a friend to you, and talk to you about the things we see in God's Word that will bring to you life, real life. But I also want to speak to those of you who call CLF your home. The challenges that people face in our world are real. I was in a conversation this last year with a particular member of our city government about a particular, some particular things going on in our city because I wanted to have a dialogue with him to let him, number one, we're praying for them. And then number two, I wanted him to know as well that there's some biblical perspectives of things that we at CLF believe strongly about and we'd love to have that dialogue. And in the conversation, he made an interesting statement to me. He said, David... He says, I'm talking to you. You need to understand, this is not like talking to an, another Christian because most Christians don't believe these issues are real. They believe these are just lies people believe and they don't struggle with them. But listen, CLF, I want to say to you clearly, people think, believe, struggle with things that we don't struggle with and they're real. They're real struggles. They're real challenges. So we must not only have God's mind on these matters, which today, by God's grace, and next week, we're going to look at God's mind on these matters. We must also have <clears throat> God's heart toward people on these matters. This is why we need Genesis 1 and 2. We need to see the God of all creation loving humanity enough to provide everything He's provided. Listen, including gender and sexuality. And see through the lens of God's word, that is the way that God has created for, for human flourishing that goes beyond our wildest imaginations. That's why we need it. We need it for our heads. We need it for our hearts. We, we need it for stability and peace. And we need it, listen, to help our friends. And if you think these things aren't real, just for some time, if you're a grandparent, go visit with your, your Gen Z Grandson or granddaughter, go visit with somebody who's in the, from 19 onward to hear from them what are the challenges and things they're facing in the world and the discussions they're having with friends around them and it will shock you to go, wait, these things aren't just real. These, these guys that I care about are trying to have answers for these things. How do they have answers if we think they're not real? We've got to have answers for our head but also for our heart. So here's what we're, I hope we're going to learn today in our sermon on Genesis 1 and 2, this is the big idea, God made humanity, male and female, in His image. He created us to represent Him and honor Him. And He provided for all we needed. I will say that again. God made humanity, male and female, in His image. He created us to represent Him and honor Him. He provided for all we needed. Now, as I said to you last week, these three sermons, last week, this week, and next week's sermons, are the most foundational and essential sermons in the entire book of Genesis that we're going to cover. These chapters set the stage for how you view life and how, how, you, how you view how you're going to interact with this world and even understanding what is the gospel about. Is it about just restoring us to God? Or is it about restoring our true humanity that we see in Genesis 1 and 2? And these chapters will show us how God created all things and why He designed them the way 
that he did. Now, what's hard about these chapters is just, honestly, getting to where we see Jesus. These things lay out to us utopia. They lay out to the things that God, how God made them to be. But the wonder of Christ that you have to overlay over all of these things is that as we go through every area that God made us as humans, I know it's going to happen. You're going to, in your heart, you're going to go, yeah, but what about and you can name the sin or the issue or the or the confusion or whatever it may be. And you have to lay over all that the good news of the gospel. Because what the good news of the gospel does, it comes to restore us to the way God originally designed. You have to see Jesus as the true human. And anybody who is in Jesus has restored to them their true humanity. That's how you have to see this. So when you when we're going through this, you've got to see and understand and believe and hope in, listen, I don't see that in my world per se, but you've got to see in the hope of the gospel, that's exactly why Jesus came. So let's stand together. We're going to read a few verses out of Genesis 1 and then some out of Genesis 2. And we're going to read verses 21 through or 26 through 31 in Genesis 1, and I'll point you where we are next in Genesis 2. Genesis 1, verse 26, this is the reading of God's Word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his his own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed, with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now skip down to verse 4 of chapter 2, and we'll read down through verse 9. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work on the ground, work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and it was watering the whole face of the, the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Let's skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. 
But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its, fle- it closed up its flesh with pl- its pl- place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May God bless the preaching of his word and the hearing of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Now let's start by looking at the first point in your outline, which is God made humanity in His image. And you're going to notice there's only two points in your outline, so these are full. So make sure if you're taking notes that you leave yourself plenty of room. Genesis 1 walks us through the various days of creation and tells us that each day was different and God made something unique and something new. Day 1, day and night. Day 2, heaven and earth. Day 3, sea and land. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Can you tell a song that's in my head that I always sing with my kids when I, they were younger? Day five, fish and birds. Day six, animals and humanity. Genesis chapter one, verse 26 is on the sixth day. And what we read on the sixth day is that God said, let us make man in our image. Now this phrase, in our image, is pregnant with theological and cultural issues that we're going to need to unpack in about 40 minutes, right? So buckle your seatbelts because we've got to get this done, right? You're going to notice that in chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, it declares something about how God, that God made man. But what you're going to notice is chapter 2 reveals how all this takes place. So chapter 1 gives us a very brief description of what God did on the sixth day, but chapter 2 expounds on the sixth day. Notice in chapter 2, verse 7, that God made man out of dust and breathed life into his nostrils. And then you'll notice that God made woman out of man in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Genesis 2 is merely in a, just expounding on what has taken place in, in, in the sixth day. If you wanted to know what happened in the sixth day, Genesis chapter 2 is all about that. And on this sixth day, we're introduced to something about God that has not been revealed yet in the Bible. We're introduced to this phrase, this term, us. Let us make man in our image. Meaning in the very first chapter of the Bible, we are introduced to what's called the Godhead or the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now we know from the Bible, from Chapter 1, verse 2, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We know from John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, which is Jesus. And in Proverbs chapter 8, the wisdom that was before the foundation of the world was with God in that time. Those are Jesus. And so Father, Son, Holy Spirit were at creation, working together, if you will, to do things at creation. And right here, we get a a, a glimpse behind the veil, if you will, at a dialogue with God, the Godhead. And here's what they say. It's time. Let us make man in our image. This is completely different than the way the God made the rest of the universe. Notice that when God made vegetation, He said, let the earth sprout vegetation. 
Notice that when he made the fish, he said, let the waters swarm with animal creatures, and he created them. But when it came to making humans, God said, let us make man in our image. And the reason this is so important is it reveals that humanity is the crown jewel of God's creation. Don't let the media or anybody else tell you otherwise. You may love your little kitty cat, but your kitty cat is not nearly as superior in creation as you are. God made you as a human to be the crown jewel of His creation. Humanity is created differently than all other created creatures in the universe. Because God set humans apart from all other creatures. We're told that the Godhead made made us in our image. Let us make man in our image. Now this can reveal several things. Certainly in the Godhead, you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are in communication and relationship together. So we were made relational beings. God created us to have relationships with one another. You might like yourself being a hermit, but in reality, God did not make you to live in isolation. He made you in God's image to live in relationship with people. But also in the Godhead, you'll notice unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit may be three persons, but they are one. They are perfectly unified. And God made us to live as humans in unity together. That's why you'll notice in John 17, when Jesus prays for His people, He prays for unity like the Father and Son experience in the Godhead. It means that God made us unique. And being the crown jewel of His creation, we could list a variety of things. Now let me just be frank with you. The things I'm going to list for you this morning, beyond the ones I've already listed, are specific for our church. I can list a lot of other things. But part of the pastor's job is not just to exegete the text, but also to exegete his congregation of what they need the most. So the things that we picked out here are things that we believe these are the things our church needs to learn, grow in, understand, appreciate, and apply so that when we go out into this world, we see, hey, we're made in God's image and this is what it means to our witness in this world. So it certainly means being made like God that God made us rational. Meaning we have the ability as humans to reason and process information. Humanity was made with a moral compass and a basic understanding of right and wrong. Listen, when you watch your world today, don't lose your minds thinking nobody believes that there's a God. No. According to Romans, creation is spoken to all of us in such a way that it reveals there's a God in heaven and the reason they don't believe in a God is because they've suppressed the truth about God because God made each one of us with the ability to look up See that mountain over there and say, somebody bigger than me created that. He made all of us this way. God made humans with the ability to make real decisions that have real effects. We're the only creature in the world like this. Your decision to get up this morning has real effects. Your decision to eat pepperoni pizza with jalapenos has real effects this morning. Right? 
Right? I've said to people before, this may be a word from the Lord or something I ate for dinner last night. I'm not exactly sure which. Just be prepared, right? Being made in God's image means we have the ability to make real decisions that have real effects. But being made in God's image also means that we were made to represent God on the earth as humans. See, unlike the tigers, lions, and bears, oh my, humans have a special status given from God on the earth. We are here to represent the creator of all the universe. Now, Kenneth Matthews wrote it like this. In the ancient Near East, it was widely believed that kings represented the patron deities of their nations or city-states. Rulers were responsible for the equilibrium between nature and society by securing the favor of the gods. Also, justice and well-being of society were dependent upon the administration of the king's rule. The language of Genesis 1.26 reflects this idea of a royal figure representing God as his appointed ruler. Our passage before us declares that all people, not just kings, have the special status of royalty in the eyes of God. Now just for a moment, consider this. Look around you, process this where you are. Every human who's ever been created was made to represent God on the earth. That's why God made you. You are to be reflecting how the Creator made you and what the Creator's role is of taking dominion of all the earth. It's an astonishing thought. It gives a whole new meaning to when you get into 2 Corinthians 5, after Christ has come and Jesus says, out of the mouth of the Apostle Paul, that we are Christ's ambassadors. Do you see what God's doing? Restoring back what He originally started in the creation mandate. You and I were made to represent God on this earth. But it also means that being made in God's image means we're to exercise dominion over the earth. You notice that God gave us dominion over everything. I want you to notice something. This was not our doing. What you're going to hear in the media today and in collegiate universities today and from people that don't lean this direction is how arrogant of man to think that man is so superior. How arrogant of humans to think that they have the right to utilize these natural resources. How arrogant, and you can go through the list of all the issues, because the assumption, what's implied, is that man put himself in charge. That's not the case. The God of the universe put us in charge. It is delegated authority from God. In other words, we are to take care of this earth, not the other way around. The earth doesn't take care of us. The earth, rather, is what God is using to provide for all of our needs, as we'll see in just a moment. Because, but God has delegated the stewardship of this earth to us. Humans are to take dominion over the earth as representatives of God. But we're to do it in such a way that allows for human thriving and human joy. Why? Because humans are the crown jewel of God's creation. Therefore, when we steward the planet, we're stewarding it for the crown jewel of God's creation. But think about this dominion mandate for a moment. Go take dominion implies something, doesn't it? It implies 
that there's a sin-stained world that we're living in. It implies it's looking ahead. See, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there is no sin or evil in the world. That's coming in Genesis chapter 3. As God's representatives on the earth, our human responsibility is to take dominion over the evil and the wickedness that we see in this world by confronting it and addressing it. Now, knowing that God made us in His image to live in these unified relationships and to represent Him and take dominion over all things, it shows us a few things about humans. It shows us the first thing, that that the hum, that humans are the crown jewel of God's creation. Don't miss that. So think about the implications of this in your world. Places like the Church of Euthanasia or political ideas or any idea that says, that calls for the destruction of humanity through abortion, physician-assisted suicide, or any ballot measure that may lean that direction, or people that don't care for the weak or the innocent or the vulnerable, do not understand God's design. They are chaotic, they're creating confusion, and they are attempting to destroy God's image bearers, which makes them an enemy of God. God has placed the highest value possible on human life. You know how we know that? By the laws that God gave to protect human life. You know that God is the creator of capital punishment, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You know why He created that? Because human life is so valuable. If you take one and you're responsible for it intentionally, your life should be taken. God placed the highest value on human life. Those who do not value human life, who want to destroy human life, are actually creating cosmic treason in the court of God. You must understand that. So when you go to the ballot box or you hear these discussions everywhere, you need to realize these are people fighting to destroy image-bearing. But this also means that every human ever made, at the most foundational baseline level, deserves respect because they are made in the image of God. In a conversation I had this summer with somebody in the civil government, I asked them a question. I said, why do we decide in our government that it would be appropriate to just set aside certain months of the year to celebrate this race or this sexual leaning? Why, why do we do that? And, he, and his comment back to me was, well, you know, because these people need to be honored. And I said, well, I, have a, I just have a question. I said, don't you think that's shooting too low? He said, what do you mean? I said, uh, why don't we have a year where we actually say something? We're going to celebrate humanity. Because humanity is made in the image of God. I said, see, you're looking for an answer to racism by celebrating one race above another race, and all you've done is create conflict. You're looking, to, you're looking to help elevate one sexual preference over another sexual preference so one will not be repressed or suppressed when in reality what we need to do is recognize each human made in the image of God which would be a solving problem. If we, it would solve the issue. We would no longer compete. We would be coming together. If you want the answers to racism, you go to Genesis 1 and 2 and you go to Jesus. If you want the answers to how we deal with all the conflict politically, you go to Genesis 1 and 2 and to Jesus. 
And what you notice is, at the baseline of this understanding is every human created in the history of the world deserves respect because they're made in the image of God. You know what that means, right? It means, it means a frustrating uncle. Right? It means the weird gas attendant that you're waiting in line and you cannot believe that we have to pump our, somebody else has to pump our gas in Oregon and you're waiting for somebody to come do that. It means that the person who disagrees with your politics. It means the opinionated sports addict. I say that from experience. Are all made in the image of God and should be respected as such and treated with care. This is one reason, one reason why the church is so important to humanity. The church should be where sins are forgiven, relationships are restored, and justice is upheld. Francis Schaeffer put it like this, When the world can turn around and see a group of God's people exhibiting substantial healing in the area of human relationships in their present life, then... The world will take notice. See, the church of all people, right, knows what these truths say. The church of all people believes that God created all people in God's image. Therefore, the church of all people should be the most welcoming and warm and safe group of people that we can do a few things. We can actually disagree. We can actually talk about hard issues. And we can walk out the door and still go have a cup of coffee together or have them over at our house for dinner because we still respect one another made in God's image because that's how God made us. God created humans in His image. Now I can feel at this point, many of you are going, man, I want to know more about this. Well, too bad. Those are the things we pointed out. We're going to move on to point two, okay? All right? Let's turn our attention to the second point. And you may, what I would tell you is, those two points that we just brought up are ones I want you as a church to be processing. We need to be thinking about this in the world we live in. The second point is this, God's provision and human responsibility. Genesis 2 is a fascinating chapter. It, it, it reveals to us how God provided for the crown jewel of His creation. So if you've got Genesis 1, 26-28, revealing that God made man in His image, and it reveals that man is the crown jewel of God's creation, when you get to Genesis 2, primarily verse 4, to the end of the chapter, you are reading about God's perfect care for people in the world that He made, and through the world that He made. Notice some examples of this. Verse 5, there was not a man yet on the earth to work the ground, and it wasn't sprouting yet, yet what did God do? He made a mist to come up from the bottom of the ground, to just water everything. Verse 8 tells us about God making an extravagant garden after He'd made man and putting man in that garden to go work it. And it grew trees of every kind, those that you could look at and marvel at and those you could eat the fruit of it. And in verses 10 through 14, verses we did not read, you're going to notice something interesting. It's almost like the writer, Moses, takes a break and just says, let me tell you about all these, these, these rivers. And you look at these rivers and you go, what does this even matter? These are the major rivers of the world that in that region were called the rivers of life. This is an expression of how God provided water and how to nourish everything, plus all the precious stones and metals that would later be used for trading and commerce and building all sorts of things that God had planned for humans on the earth. 
So what you have in Genesis 2 is that God created a world that would provide for the humans that He had made. This world would have been, this would have been remarkable news to Moses' people when they read this. You know why? Moses' people when they read this, they had heard from their friends who were from false, from all these other regions of the world that the, the false gods created humans to serve the false gods and work the land to feed the gods. Yet what does Moses say in Genesis chapter 2? Oh no, no, it's, it's actually the other way around. God made the world to feed you. He is such a caring, kind God that He has made things in such a way that He would feed you. Right now, now we live in a world where food is made in a variety of different places. Before the Industrial Revolution, they made it through agriculture and plowing of the lands and all the different things that went with that. Now people create things like tofu. I mean, that's, you know, that's on you. That's a conviction. Romans 14 and 15 applies to us, right? I mean, we totally get that. In love, we let you have that conviction. But it's not food. I mean, I know what that is, but you can have, I mean, right? Uh, peas, right? I mean, uh, you know, I, I learned to eat broccoli when I met my beautiful wife because I did not like broccoli before I met my beautiful wife. And she taught me how to eat broccoli from the ground. It's good for you. Green things good, right? I like red meat, mango, right? That's what I like, right? So it, you, you're seeing here that as, as things change, we started thinking we don't need this earth. But God made this world in such a way that He provided for all we needed. Everything. Including, listen, God gave woman for man and man for woman. It's intriguing in a chapter that's about God's provision to the crown jewel that right in the middle of that chapter we are told about God giving Eve to Adam. Now you have to ask, I mean, here's all the stuff about how God made things for food, made things for water, made things for precious metals and stones, made it for we, so we could do commerce. Why did God, in the middle of this chapter, talk about humans? Well, most of us would say, well, it's so we can solve the gender debate. That is not why Genesis 2 was read, was written. It was written to say to people, God has provided for you this tree to eat, this animal over here to take care of, Water for everything that you need. And by the way, that precious woman you have, she's a gift from God. The man that you see, he's a provision from God. Genesis 2 is given to us to reveal God's gracious care to us. Now notice why he did this. Why did he give us man and woman? He says clearly, it was not good for man to be alone and there was not a helper fit for him. So God saw a problem. There's aloneness, there's isolation. That's not good. And there's nobody that's fit. Out of all the animals that he's named, none of them fit with man. So therefore God provided for humanity. And what did he do? He provided friendship and companionship. He provided help. He provided the right complement to each person. So if you're struggling with the gender debate, if you're battling with what are the answers to this gender issue, this is the answer. The reason God gave us two genders and not 17, the reason He gave us two and not one, is because God has decided the best way I can care for humans is by giving them two genders. Two genders is an act of provision from the kind creator of the universe. 
God made male and female in His image. And listen, according to uh, Genesis 1, it was very good in the eyes of God. Every other day of creation, God said it was good. But on this day when He created man, He said it is very good. And I'm sure when Adam first saw Eve, He said, that is very good. He created male and female as a provision from His generous hand. It was not, listen, it was not a sinister act of a, of a weird creator who just wanted us locked into our bodies that we don't like. And listen, friends, if you talk to people that are struggling with their gender, you're going to find that's some other challenge. They feel locked into this body. And why would God make me like this? If this is an act of a good God, I don't like my body. I should be something else. And you can see at the root of that is a misunderstanding of the kind, good hand of God. That's why the church must be welcoming, warm, and safe to have these discussions with people. God giving us male and female was an act of His goodness for us. So let's just dive into that just briefly for a bit further. Notice that God said again, it was not, He created, He, he, didn't, he, he wanted a creature that was fit for a man. Can't miss that phrase. The term that's used here is acting according to the opposite. Now, my wife and I first started dating. I can still remember this vividly. We started dating in June, and the first month of June through the middle of July, we fought like, I mean, it was, it was, we fought like crazy. I had to leave to go to a trip back to Texas to visit my family for a month, and as I was getting on the plane, I looked at her and I said, listen, here's the deal. We're either going to get married, or we're never going to see each other again. We're done fighting. And she said, I totally agree with you. Because sometimes I can't stand you, and sometimes I can't, I can't help but be around you. I said, we're going to fast and pray about this. While we were both gone, separated, the Lord just brought to mind this issue. He had given me somebody who was according to my opposite. When I said light, she said dark. When I said blue, she said red. When I said two, she said four. And finally I had to say, this is a completely different perspective. I need to hear what your perspective is. And I begin to appreciate being according to the opposite. She fit. We got back together. The moment I got off the plane, I looked at her in the eye and I said, I think we're going to get married. Let's move on. (laughs) Now listen to A.P. Ross on this issue. He said this, It, fit for man, means that woman would share the man's nature. That is, whatever the man received at creation, she too would have. The man and the woman thus corresponded physically, socially, and spiritually. The woman, by relative difference, but essential quality, would be man's fitting complement. What he lacked, not good, she supplied. And it would be be safe to say that what she lacked, he supplied, for life in common requires mutual help. Now, friends, what you have in your world today is a reaction to some things that we saw in the 50s where it was just only father knows best. And so now what you have is mommy always knows best and dad's just an idiot. That's what you see in your world today. But in reality, what this quote tells us is man needs woman and woman needs man. We're fit together. Woman was according to the kind of man, but she was different. Man was according to the kind of woman, but he was different, but they fit together. 
We define humanity as male and female because we complement one another. We fit together. And to take that away is again fighting against the design of God and thus again fighting against God and things don't fit. They get chaotic and weird. Do you see that in your world today? But then notice something else. that The woman was created as the helper for man. Man needed help. And every woman goes, Amen, I totally agree with that. Have you met my man? Right? And every dude, to be honest with you, privately says to his buddies, Have you met my wife? She needs some help, man. Right? We all need help. Again, though, think about this term. We, we get so wigged out about this term, but just listen to A.P. Ross again as he defines this term helper for us. He says the word helper is a term seldom given the proper exposition. It may be difficult to improve on the English translation, meaning helper is a good term. However, it's important for the exposition to trace its usage. In that way, it will soon become apparent, listen clearly, that helper is not a demeaning term. God is usually the one described as the helper. The word essentially describes one who provides what is lacking in the man who can do what the man alone cannot do. The Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, translated the word physician in other places. The man was thus created in such a way that he needs the help of a partner. Or we may say that human beings cannot fulfill their destiny apart except in mutual assistance. So when you have somebody react to, well, God made woman a helper, what a bad term. Do you think God said, you know what, they called me a helper in the Bible, what a bad term. God himself said he is the helper, meaning when a a woman was given to man, it was God-like assistance. You could not think of a higher calling, ladies. You could not think of a higher understanding of the role that God has given the woman than to see that she was called to be like God in men's lives. Now, I know some of you ladies don't try to act like God. That'd be bad, okay? But you can see the place of this role. God knew exactly what we needed, and what did God do? He provided by giving us each other. Now, remember, this was all done because it was good for us not to be alone. Right? We, we're not made to live in isolation. We're not made to, to not be, be working together side by side, man and woman side by side to complement one another. We're not made to live in, in, in a lack of companionship and friendship. We're not made to not be vulnerable with one another. See, I, I think that's why we read about the first institution of marriage in the end of, the, in the, in the chapter two. That one man, one woman, for one lifetime, and they cleave to one another, and they leave their father and mother's house, and they become one flesh, and they were naked and not ashamed. Meaning, they don't hide anything from one another, because they're willing to be vulnerable. It's the deepest, most intimate relationship on earth, and God did it. Why? Because we needed it. Genesis 2 is all about God providing for us. And when we look at it from that lens, you see something very clearly. God saw that we needed both genders, and what did He do? He gave us two genders. It means that males and females were both created in the image of God. But it means in such a way we're given to by God to one another that we complement one another. 
And when we complement one another, understanding our God-given image-bearing and our God-given roles, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find relational joy, you're going to find intense happiness, and you're going to find overwhelming intense satisfaction. Outside of that, you're going to find frustration. But when it's done from God's image, in God's way, with God's power, here's what you're going to find. Intense joy, happiness, and satisfaction. You're going to find something fascinating. We're going to get to Genesis 3, see sin. And you're going to get over to Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul begins to talk about marriage. And you know what Paul says about marriage? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Don't dominate over her. You lovingly lead her. And wives... See to it that you're respectful, not usurpers of authority like it happened in Genesis chapter 3. Do you see what he's doing? He is simply going back to the before the fall and restoring our understanding of how we complement one another. Kenneth Matthews wrote it this way. There is no place in God's good order for unisexuality. Everybody knows what that is, right? It's where our world is basically saying today, there's no two, we don't need two genders. Tattoo gender just creates this block for all of us. We need, we, we just need to get rid of gender or just make there be one. And his point is there's no place for that or for any diminishing of, of, or, or confusion of sexual identity. Human sexuality in Genesis is, is a blessed function in the creative purposes of God. And it's essential for carrying out God's mandate for humanity. I mean, do you, do you see how important this is in the world you live in? Now again, think about this just for a moment. Let's again take Genesis 2 from a 30,000 view perspective and what do you see? God provided everything we need. He gave us food, water, companionship through a helper fit for us. He gave us marriage for ultimate friendship and vulnerability. There would be no happier place on earth than, than the Garden of Eden. That would mean for some of us, that means there's no law. God didn't give us any commands. Yet right in the middle of this happiest place on earth, God gave us one prohibition. Work, keep the garden, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One thing to not do, everything to do. God holds humans and has them become responsible. He gave us something to do, work, and something not to do. Don't eat of that tree. Work, do everything you want, but don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the reason for it, he says, is you will surely die. Now, this is the first commandment we find that God gave to man. First commandment in the Bible, and notice what it has to do with. Life and death. You obey, there's life. You disobey, there's death. I had a conversation recently with a young man talking about honoring his father and mother. And I said, it is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long on the earth. you see the life and death principle there? When God gives a command, it's about life and death. Now think about this in Genesis 2. Everything's at man's disposal. Nothing is off limits. God is not depriving man of anything. He gave him everything. And in obedience to God, man could do anything he wanted. But if he disobeys and he eats of that tree, he will die. And his relationship with God will be, will be severed for a bit. And his relationship with his wife is going to change. And we read the knowledge of tree, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We start processing. Now, why would God keep that from them? Now, you hear the implication. 
God has deprived them of something. We want to know why. What's fascinating is that was the very same thing that started with the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Eve, you know why God doesn't want you to eat of that tree. Because God knows. The moment you eat of it, you will be just like Him. And He doesn't want you to be like Him. He's going to know good and evil. Do you see how mean God is? He's holding you back. He's keeping something from you. And we start wrestling with the why of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But I want you to notice something in the text. We're never given the why. And the reason we're never given the why is because that's not the point of the tree. The point of the tree reveals to us an opportunity to obey for life or an opportunity to disobey for death. I think Derek Kidner put it best when he wrote these words. In the context, however, the emphasis falls on the prohibition rather than on the properties of the tree. It is shown to us as forbidden. It is idle to ask what it might mean in itself. This was Eve's error. Now, parent, every parent in the world knows this. Son, get up, go clean your room. Why? Why? You don't understand. I, I do not give you a why. I give you a command. Every adult in the room knows the challenge. Why not give myself to that luxury when it's outside of God's plan? What harm is it going to do? That was Eve's error. As it stood, prohibited, it presented the alternative to discipleship. To be self-made, resting one's knowledge, satisfactions, and values from the created world in the defiance of the Creator. And friends, what a, what a great lesson for us. Look around you and think about your life for a moment. Has God not provided everything that you have? That breath you just took, that nice sleep you had last night, where maybe you might have been rolling around, but you were sleeping, you're on a bed, and God's sustaining every breath you have. Those molecules in your brain and the stuff that's there, all the electro stuff going on in your head, and it's not just snapping you right now, that's a gift from God. The ability to put your feet on the ground, think about your day, that's an act of God. He provided life, He provided food, He provided air and water, He causes the sun to rise, He causes the, the, the rain to come, He causes the harvest to show up, He causes the fruit to ripen, all so that we can eat of these particular things. And He's even given us our genders, male and female, so we would not be alone. He's given us different roles, which we'll talk about next week, to complement one another. And He's given us all these things to richly enjoy. He's not kept one thing from us. Not one thing. And in the midst of His world, with all of His provision that He's created, He calls us to look to Him as the sustainer, the life giver, and the king, and represent Him on the earth. And He gives us one command. You know what the one command is? Obey me with all your heart. One command. He gave us all this provision and He's given us one prohibition for our everlasting joy. You know what that means in Genesis 2? It means that the gender God gave you is for your joy. It's for your joy. It is not intended for you to make your gender what you want or to find your identity in your gender outside of being an image bearer of God. To do so, to just... To find your identity outside of being an image bearer and to do what your gender, whatever you want to do, will not bring you joy, but will bring you distress. 
It means that the sexuality God gave you is for your joy. Your sexuality is not intended for you to be just tossing it around at the whims of your own desires and simply fulfilling whatever your mind or your lust tells you to do, but it's given to you to honor God. The world that God gave you is to be cared for and stewarded for your joy and for human flourishing so that you can do your work as unto the Lord as an activity that says, this is going to benefit my fellow man. To worship the creation above the Creator will bring confusion and chaos. And listen, friends, it will cause human frustration everywhere. God made you the way He made you with the DNA He gave you, the personality He gave you, so that you could be you for your everlasting joy. And listen, any prohibition then God gives you, do not lie, do not commit adultery, honor your father and mother, is also for your everlasting joy. And to disobey God is to bring death. Death in relationships, death to your friendship with God, death to your physical body. See, God has provided all that we need, but He's made us responsible for what He's provided. Now, it doesn't take you long to just think through maybe how ungrateful you've been or how you spoke to your spouse this morning on the way to church. Or how you treated your kids. Or maybe as you're thinking through your gender, you're starting to think, wow, I I thought that I could do whatever I wanted to do with my body, and my body really doesn't belong to me. I was made by God for a reason. Or maybe you're battling with some form of immorality that you just thought to yourself, I just give myself wherever I want to give myself, and it doesn't matter to God, but it does. Because God gave you the things He gave you to be utilized for His glory and His honor and for your everlasting joy. Let's pray. Father, these things are challenging to say the least. And I thank you that you are at work in us. I pray for friends today that are watching online or here that are battling with some of the issues we talked about. And I pray, Father, that you would help them know that they have a friend in Christ who wants to restore them, forgive them, encourage them, and strengthen them. If that's you this morning, you don't know Christ, I would encourage you this morning to put your faith in Jesus. I pray for believers this morning who have put their faith in Christ, but yet, Lord, they see them themselves struggling with why they were made and what they were, and all the different issues of this world, and they're wrestling with anger toward others or disrespect toward fellow humans. I pray, Father, that you would cause us to repent. And you would turn us to the only one who can save us, the only one who can restore us and help us. In Jesus. Do your work among us and do business with us while we're in our seats. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.